can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Welcome, loyal listeners, to another episode of Break Some Dishes. Today is a day of firsts for us. We will be talking to our first, and hopefully more to come, textile designer, Lori Weitzner. We are looking forward to this conversation with her. John, why don't you remind us why we are all here? Uh, We're trying to find some conversations both outside the industry and inside the industry, people who are doing things differently, finding ways of doing things that affect sustainability. And sometimes it's breaking some dishes in the kitchen. Sometimes it's taking baby steps and figuring out what you can do and how you can do it. And so, Lori, you and I talked a little bit, gosh, I mean, months ago now, but it seems like it seems like it anyway. And you told me a little bit about, you know, what you were doing uh, with your practice. And, uh, you know, let's just have a conversation about it. And I think, too, a lot of times people think that we need to speak literally with them about what they're doing and and what they want to do. And a lot of times we get beneath the surface a little bit and it becomes more of a philosophical conversation in terms of what you think you should be doing and stuff like that. So welcome, Lori. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah, welcome to break some dishes. We're gonna we're gonna bust up some dishes in the kitchen with you today. So thanks for joining us. Now, anybody who doesn't know who Lori Weitzner is, Lori is founder and creative director of Weitzner Design Incorporated. You're a very talented textile designer, and uh, you've been at it for a little while. We're not gonna we're not gonna throw years around. We don't need to do no. that. But give us a, a little bit of a you know, give us a little bit of a history, how you got into textile design and kind of what you're up to these days. Sure. Yes. Good. We don't talk years, but um, I went to Syracuse University and I was going to be a painting major and um, I was going to be a painter. And my professor at school asked me what I was going to do to make a living. And I said, I was going to be a painter. And he said, no, you're not, you're not good enough. And you're not going to be living at it. I know. Yet that is not a mother and a father talking right there. (laughs) It was brutal, but it was honest. And I honor him till this day for telling me the truth. And he said, you should become a textile designer. And we have that major here at Syracuse because you have a good sense of color and composition. And at that time, I didn't even know what textile design was. Of course, since I realized it's everywhere all around us. Um, And so I switched my major and I never looked back since. Oh, there you go. Accidental. An accidental textile Now, I know Lori's our guest today, but I want to share my history story. You just brought up some memories. So I was the first textile design major at San Jose State University back in, I don't want to say what year, (laughs) but it's kind of funny. I did it because, because I was the first, I could do anything I wanted. And I was into installation art and all kinds of other things. And maybe somebody should have told me to focus (laughs) instead of giving me some tough love. But anyways, yeah. Or can spirits then, because there aren't many of us in the world. And what people don't realize is it's everywhere. Textile designers are everywhere. They're all around us. Everything we walk on, live on, eat on, sit on, drive on is all developed by us. Mm. Yeah. So think about the impact a textile designer could have on sustainability, right? So full disclosure here, Laura, I'm going to... Verda and I always have a conversation together beforehand. Sometimes it's a 20-minute conversation. Sometimes it's a a a three-and-a-half-minute conversation. But it usually goes like this. 
vertigos to me. John, why are we having this guest on break some dishes today? What is, what's the, what is it? Come on. What's the, what's the, you know, interest level here with sustainability. And so we kind of talk about it and she said, Hey, listen, let's talk about Lori for a second. Lori looks like a really talented textile designer, but really what the hell is she doing with sustainability? Like what, what is Lori's message? Like what is Lori doing to break some dishes? Right. And so I'm throwing that back to you. Like you're a textile designer. You make beautiful things, right? I do, but I'll tell you, I'm so grateful for this question because probably the thing that's most important in my, in my career, beginning with the days when I worked for Jack Larson and then onward was my work with artisan communities around the world. And when we talk about sustainability, there are many ways to talk about it. There's working with materials that are sustainable or better for the environment, but there's also the people component that isn't talked about as much. There are techniques and beautiful communities who um, whose ancient techniques that have passed down from generation to generation, whether it's been in embroidery or, or dyeing or paper making, that um, sustain their livelihoods. So if we want to talk about sustainability, let's talk about that. And so I have been committed with a number of things that I do for Weitzner Limited, which is where I make fabric and wall covering. I would say at least 50% of the collection is made with artisan communities around the world. Our, our collection of wall coverings are all made from recycled materials from the environment. We have a line of papers from, made from abaca, which is banana fiber, and pina, which is pineapple fiber, and um, mulberry leaves, which all come from the area. And if I'm working in the Philippines, for example, I work with materials indigenous there. If I work in Thailand, it's the materials indigenous there, so on and so forth, Nepal. And um, it's with artisans. And it's all handmade in open-air mills. And yet we're selling the product, thankfully for interior designers, ASID interior designers, that are going into hotels and restaurants and homes. And so you have the artist's hand of these materials made from sustainable materials in these glamorous installations. And it's a win-win for everybody. So that's sort of a short answer on, on... Is that scalable? I mean, they're all handmade, so it's artisan, it's handcrafted. Mm -hmm. Do you think about scalability when you do something like that? Absolutely. So I'll give you one example. And, you know, scalability to you may be different than what scalability is to our company. But one example is we got a huge order on these handmade gilded panels that were going into the Wynn Macau. And um, we needed, it was one of the biggest orders we've ever gotten in history. So our artisans brought in 140 people from the villages, spent two weeks training them who were normally not doing this kind of work and over a six month period produced this product. So of course the client has to be willing to wait and understand that if it's a handmade product and to get the beauty of the handmade we have to be patient, but we can also scale to a certain extent by bringing more people into the community. And it was, it was wonderful. And when I went to visit them um, afterwards, it was very emotional, actually, but they all came out from the village and were big smiles. And it was, it was lovely. I mean, I wish we could get more projects like that. Yeah. Um, but the challenge is not all of our clients can afford the handmade for large scale, those kinds of, orders. Hotels, 
for sure have special areas where they will do it. But a lot of the time we're asked to do um, what we would call a wave down. And it's never the same. Just never the same. What did you call that? A weave down is, is really a term more for textile than it is for wall covering, but it's when someone loves something of ours that's in our collection, but it's too expensive and maybe doesn't have the performance factors needed for that installation or application. And so they ask us to do a version of it that's less expensive, that meets the performance requirements, but looks like the original. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. We do well. We do really well. And sometimes we hit the jackpot with it. And other times it's just not possible to replicate um, exactly abaca and pina and gold leaf in a digital print. Right. So it's a, you know, and then it becomes a choice for our client who's the interior designer and where, where we have to compromise more. Because the realities are there are budgets in these projects. I get it. Residential, we don't have that issue nearly as much. Okay. Now, I'm curious that that village of 140 people that helped with the project out, did you go back and like see what they did with the, they yeah. must have had a nice profit from that and probably yeah. built a community center or did something for their town? Yeah, they they did. And it's an amazing, very small village about two hours outside of, um, um, what's the main city in the Philippines again? Manila. Manila, thank you very much. Um, Roberta, good geography. I've, I've been to Manila and I've and I've driven north of the Philippines to Mingan Pangasinan. Is oh. where my family grew up. Oh my god! Well, that volcano, that dormant volcano, yeah. is, mm-hmm. it's right by there. Here. Oh, got it. <laughs> it's beautiful there, and the people are beautiful. And that's just one example. I'm doing work in India. I'm doing work in Nepal. I'm doing work in America. A lot of times when I talk about this, I'm so passionate about this work. People always say, "Well, what about America?" Absolutely, I'm working with artisans here as well. But you have to find the right product, the right project, in the right place. You yeah. can't do everything everywhere. Right. And that's why I said in terms of materials, sustainable materials, it's very important to understand what's in abundance in these different countries and work with that instead of trying to, like we do work with an amazing group of um, artisans and hand weavers in Nepal. But we were trying to um, do a, a special hand weaving project with leather, faux leather, but they had to get the faux leather from another country in. And then the duty became crazy expensive. It wasn't practical. But when we were working with the Lakta paper, which is inherent and indigenous and made in Nepal, it made total sense. So you have to think about all those things. And then it's a really is a win-win for everybody. But the most gratifying thing is, unfortunately, with COVID, I haven't been able to travel. Right. But going there and visiting them, there's another example also in the Philippines, but a different part in an island called Calibo, where, or Calibo, where um, we work with a, an organization that employs 100 women weavers, but they're all working in different areas. So the, the person that has the home with a bigger outdoor space puts all the looms that were provided by the government and then the women weave. And we have um, them weave with abaca and silk, and then we layer it on on paper uh, in Japan and it becomes one of the most beautiful wall coverings. And when I went there to show them pictures of these designer installations, they were 
ecstatic because to them they're just weaving these pieces. Right. They don't know what's happening to it, and all of a sudden they're seeing the most glamorous of beautiful installs of their product that they handmade and spent so much time on. This was very wonderful. So there are a lot of initiatives with artisans around the world to keep up what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are challenges to it as well. There are challenges in terms of how to get them to understand that what we do, they need to be able to do repeatedly with the same color matching over a few years time. It's not right. like fashion fashion. You can do one run and you're done. But in our industry, we're giving out samples to all of the designers. They may have it on their desk for a year before they order it. And when they True. order it, they want to know that it will match and it will look like the sample. And with handmade, you know, there is some leeway you have to accept. Right. This is a new conversation for us, for sure. We've not yeah. yet talked about yeah. um, cultural sustainability. Oh, yeah. And I think it's an awesome thing to be thinking about because if you you know an opportunity to help an indigenous indigenous culture um help it thrive but also preserve an element of it is is pretty cool do you ever get an opportunity to understand a process that's an indigenous process or a cultural process and then maybe learn from it or or just make sure that you do something to perpetuate it so it doesn't become obs- become extinct. John, that's an ama- that's a great question and a very timely question in general because what's happening is a lot of with technology, which can be amazing. Um, you're losing a lot of that. I think the best example of that is indigo dye, for example, which has been around for centuries. But, you know, it's not the same, but technology can replicate the look of it without all the challenges of it or the time issues of it. Um, And yet what I'm seeing on the artisan side is a resurgence in natural indigo dye, in the original indigo dye. So it's really interesting. It's sort of like um, as long as it doesn't completely die, It's sort of like an ebb and flow. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> ebb and flow. I mean, but like I'm in business. This is my problem. I have like a split personality because part of me just wants to do these fine art things and, and just work with these artisans all the time doing stuff. But like I can't introduce actual indigo textile into my collection. Why? Well, first of all, the dye will, isn't permanent. So you'll sit on it and it'll get on your white jeans. Mm-hmm. Just one example. Yeah. So I have to live in a somewhat practical world. So I, again, try and find the ways that I can work with artisans to perpetuate their beautiful traditions, but that can still be practical for today. I think the best example of where we're doing that is with embroidery and beading, hand embroidery and hand beading. We're doing a good job there where we can work with their traditional, beautiful techniques. Are these mostly applied to your jewelry collection? Jewelry and also passementry and textile. So I do a lot of different things, um, but in our fabric collection for Whitesnow, we have beautiful embroideries. Some of them are hand done. Some of them are done by machine um, and some beading. In the passementry, which for those who don't know is trim for home furnishing for upholstery. It's like the jewelry for your home and those are tapes and all. We're doing a lot of handwork there. <clears throat> a lot of handwork and these artisans, I would say mostly in India 
we're working with and working with metal embroidering by hand with metal form and all that kind of thing. And then certainly with my jewelry, my jewelry is all handmade with artisans um, again in India and the Philippines and working with really old, beautiful techniques. And there you can get away with more than in our industry for sure. But I will tell you like one of our biggest orders last year, again, for a hotel was an embroidery for drapery for all the root executive, all the suites. Wow. So I will say that those were the original was hand done and then we moved it to machine embroidery. Mm-hmm. Still need those artisans to, to do the originals and to monitor. And they're the ones who are trained on the embroidery machines and all. So there's still a, a component that's by hand. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think I, I read about, your line, I think this was quite a while ago where you used newspaper. I think it was called Newsly. Yeah. Was that one of your first experiments into thinking about sustainability? Huh? And this is crazy, but this is about breaking dishes. <laughs> right. Um, how appropriate. How appropriate. Well, I because it's so many years ago when I launched the first one. And it was just a crazy idea of shredding newspaper and then weaving it because I kept thinking, so I'm, as, as I said, a textile designer, but then I moved into paper just because I thought there was so much more we could do with wall coverings than we're, than what were being done. But because I'm a textile designer, I thought, let's weave, let's weave paper. Let's try and weave newspaper. Why not? And then we paper backed it and we decided to launch it, never thinking we would sell one yard. We just, it was just one of those crazy things where own your own business and you don't know what you're doing. You just go for it. And you just yeah. try thing. <laughs> it became a bestseller. It is still a bestseller today. And I don't quote me on this, but I think, I think we launched it 15 years ago, 14 years mm-hmm. ago, soon after I just started Whitesner. And since then, and so we collect newspapers from all over the world. Since then, we've done a lot of versions of that. We've done magazines that we plate, which is like braiding. And then we paper back it and that goes, it's called Kodiak and that goes on the wall. We've done something called headlines, which is taking magazines and twisting them like you would twist a yarn and then weaving it. And that's a thicker, it's almost like a grass cloth, but made of newspaper instead of, and magazines instead of grass. Oh, wow. So I'm taking my weaving textile roots, but putting into this wall covering world. And Mm -hmm. I would say probably 50% of our wall covering collection. So more than our textile collection is made from sustainable materials. And that would be, so not all recycle, like, so there's newspaper and magazines, so that's upcycling. But then we also have like just from plants and flowers and leaves and, excuse me, and branches and things like that. Mm -hmm. As you can see, I get very excited (laughs) um, because again, just taking it back to your, to the AS2 designers, I'm just good at designing the product. I'm not an interior designer. So what's super cool is to see what they do with this product, where they put these things is really interesting. Yeah. I think that the textile industry too, Laura, you probably, I know that you know it much better than we do. How is the textile industry when we grade it on a sustainability report card? I mean, it's got to be pretty rough, I think. Pretty bad, right? Yeah. You want to hear the She's word? giving us the thumbs down, people. Give Those of you at right? home. <laughs> you can't see, but it's actually two thumbs down. It is the number, t- I hate to say this, um, but in general, it's the number two largest polluter in the world. Second to oil. 
Wow. 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 We're going to have to ask you to leave now, Lori. Thanks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> not me. Yeah. <laughs> that's we all that's amazing. To it. We all contribute to it. I knew it was bad, but I never would have guessed it was number two to oil. That's alarming. And what? tell us why. Yeah. Well, there's so many reasons. Um, there's so many reasons. First of all, when you think about the mills and the energy to to work but sh- and how to get the, ener- the mills working, but it's also the water. One of the biggest issues, but a positive, is cleaning the water. The dye stuff is pollutant. Right. Very toxic to water. There is a lot happening there on the innovation side with, you know, self-filtering water systems within state-of-the-art mills. Where it hasn't happened yet is in the smaller, more artisan mills, you know, Ah. like in India, for example, if you think they're just cleaning the water out through the water. Yeah. But I, I attended this United Nations Conference on Sustainable Textiles. There is this group in Nepal that's working on a modular system that you can buy in parts and put together in your factory. And it cleans the water. You get the idea. Yeah. So there's stuff happening because when you have the problem, there's also these great innovators in the world and that's pretty cool. Um, and also what I, what I don't want to see happening and I see happening is this, is this good or is this bad for the environment? Because I will tell you that in the text, in our world, nothing is black and white. Everything is gray. And you can say this is a great product because it's made from 100% recycled polyester. But wait a minute. Where did it come from? What kind of energy used to break down the yarn to recycle it? What about the transportation? Right. Did it come from the other side of the world? That costs a lot in, ga- in, in the environment. So I always, and I don't, you know, I know you love and, and, and I, I love that the industry is really cares about environment sustainability, but we have to be very careful. Yeah. We judge it. Yeah, it's 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 really. I think a lot of organizations struggle with sustainability initiatives because they're trying to check these boxes. And the harder they try to check a box, the the bigger mistake they make over here. You know, or they're letting this happen because they're trying so hard to check this one little tiny box. We had somebody on a scientist from MIT, Greg Norris who uh, did a lot of work for the International Living Future Institute. And he talks about something really cool called a a gratitude tree. Remember that, Verna, when he was telling us about that? And he said basically whatever he has something in his possession, he asks himself, what did we destroy to get this? Like what had to be done to get this? And he used an example that he sat down the other night for dinner with his daughters and they were having grilled tuna. And so he asked his daughters, what do you think we had to do to get this tuna, right? Well, you had a, obviously the tuna gave up a lot, right? But you had a fisherman who used a boat, who burned a lot of fuel. And, you know, you just go up the, you know, up these branches into this gratitude. And, it under, and then you understand exactly what was sacrificed really? for you to consume what you're about to consume, whether it's a textile or a, a dinner, you know? I think that's beautiful. And I think that to be more aware, we become so disconnected from the roots of things, whatever they may be. And I mean, look, I go to the supermarket and I don't even think where a lot of the food comes from. So I think that's a great point. We have this um, tradition in our family. When someone passes away, we plant a tree. Nice. Yep. 
It's yeah. It's not perfect, but it's something. Well, you'll then now you'll have to make sure you listen to our tree episode with Brian Kelly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, tune into that one. We're trying at our own firm to to start really looking at what we specify. We started a spreadsheet and we thought, okay, well, we're going to check if it's red list free and we're going to check, you know, how local it is and all these things. And we thought that it'd be much easier to do a green, like this is green, this is yellow, this is red, don't specify. But, and we thought, well, all it's going to take is a lot of research. We just, the more research, the more obvious it's going to be. And it's, it's almost the opposite. (laughs) The more research you do, the more murky it gets. And we ended up finally not even stopping with the green, red and yellow, because it's really almost like you've got to look at the whole thing holistically and then, and then evaluate it in a way subjectively. Yeah. Thank you for that, because as a textile designer, we were horrified when these big initiatives were coming in from the design community about this subject, and they were asking questions, number one, a lot we couldn't answer. We didn't know. A mill may know where a yarn comes from, but we don't know where. There's so much we don't know, and as we said before, it's not a black and white issue, and you have to look at the holistic thing, but the other thing was, if we follow that guideline, then linen and silk and wool wouldn't be part of it. Like they were because they came from a mill where maybe they were doing other things. It just, it, it was too, too dramatic and too drastic. And I, I think if I could say this, the better approach is not to say what's good or bad, but just to educate. Like what you just said about the, this gentleman is not don't eat that grilled cheese, eat it and enjoy it, but understand how you got it instead of, Oh, it's not good for the environment. You can't use that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're getting something now, which is crazy weird. So everything, everybody last year was asking for sustainable, sustainable fabrics. And now they don't care at all. They're only asking for things that are cleanable and that's fine. And we have a lot of things to offer and we're working on lots of finishes that are better for the environment, but there's always a trade-off. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah. And, yeah. And we're talking about supply chains and supply chain management and supply chain transparency. And whether you're a personal consumer and you're questioning what went into that piece of tuna that you're about to consume, or you're a manufacturer and you're questioning what went into this piece of metal that's about to go into a product that you want to sell. You know, it's about that kind of understanding. And you're right, Laurie, there's there's a give and take. You're not, you're not going to check all the boxes all the time. Not yet, unfortunately. Yeah. But if you are educated and enlightened and inspired, yep. it steps towards a better future. That's a big part of it. That's a big part of it. And, and you know, you have a good friend, Bob King, who probably won't let you get away with too much either. Mm-hmm. He, you know, when you think about material transparency, he's right up there John, I was just with them. In, they have a down in uh, Turks and Caicos, and we went fishing in the day, and we ate the fish we caught in the evening. It yeah. was really pretty wonderful. Yeah. And he was talking about since COVID how much cleaner the water is down there, and we saw dolphins really close to the to the coastline. And yeah. So. Wow. That's one of the byproducts of this pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. I've been I've been wanting to ask since you mentioned it, and if you if you can, if it's not an NDA, what American 
artisans maybe give one example that you're working with? Um, I won't give a name because it's NDA, but uh, an amazing woman who has been in the art, who's been traveling the world for her whole career, working with artisans in many different communities and has, is doing, has decided also to do some of her own uh, handmade work here in the Midwest. I'll say that. And um, she's amazing because she's learned so much from this traveling and the artisan she's worked with around the world, but she's doing her own thing here. And we're very blessed to be able to work with her, but I can't give it out because then all my competitors will want to go. to. I know. I get that. That sounds great. Wow. What are you excited about? Are you have a new project? Oh my God. Yeah. I'm excited about (laughs) A lot of things. Um, so with the textile and wall covering, we launched twice a year collections. And this year in about a month, we're about to launch a collection called Foundations. And it's something I've been wanting to do forever and never did, which is more of the basic hand-woven paper textile textures. I've always been more interested in the more dramatic or exciting or push the envelope designs when a lot of times the world needs the foundation product, the things that are, the, um, let's say, supporting cast to the space. And I, I never wanted to spend my budget on that before, but I felt it was time and we're launching a big, big collection and it's so beautifully curated with textures and the colors are very white snare and there's it's just I'm really excited about it and I would say except for maybe the faux suede everything else is natural it's silk linen or grasses that are all you know hand handmade and then paper backed and easy to apply to the wall so I'm really excited about that and um continuing to expand on the jewelry and then the past matter the trim we're launching a collection called metamorphosis which is perfect i mean we started before covid but now that it's launching and i think it's the right time we're all sort of ready to open our cocoons i think yeah and it's all inspired by butterflies caterpillars bugs the patterns in bugs the patterns in butterflies the colors the dragonflies and all of that and we're using hand embroidery and origami we're doing fabric origami pleating all by hand oh my goodness and yes I'm really excited about that and and the last thing I'll just say because it's so new for me is I have this book called Ode to Color and it talks about these 10 color worlds and this woman who's the founder of the Carriage Barn Arts Center in Connecticut um, which is a gallery, asked me to curate an exhibit based on these 10 color worlds. And John, I'm sending you an invitation because I know you're in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know Carriage Barn Arts Center. It's in Darien, but it's a beautiful, big gallery and event space. And I've never done that before, but it was really fun to do. And it's all curated by these color worlds. So there are 10 different areas, and each area is, is paintings, sculpture. I think there's some ceramics based on these worlds of color. That's what I'm most excited about right now. Oh, that sounds so cool. Hey, I have this crazy idea for you, maybe a challenge. So I'm in the commercial workplace world and our, unfortunately our interiors turn over very quickly, but we put in materials that last years. Carpet can last 40 or 50 years. Your wall covering, if taken care of, can last a long, long time. But every time those spaces turn over, a new 
client tenant moves in with a new designer and that usually the whole place gets gutted. And I've been thinking a lot about what if designers pre-planned a space and, and really thought about this space as a, a temporary space and planned it so that everything that was put in could be taken away, taken down and put either back in, in a different way in that space or in a, in a new space. Have you ever thought of creating a wall covering that could be taken away and put back somewhere else and reused for its full lifespan versus just the short life that it might have? That's a wonderful question and a wonderful point to make. I will tell you with our line of clean vinyls that we have, and I say clean because they have um, they're Green Guard certified and they have less antimonies and they're less PVC and they're the better better. They're not great, you know, but they're the best and and the world still needs that. Um, there is a the the mill will take it back if if it's and I don't know the details and I could follow up with you on how that works and then they break it down and they uh, recycle it and reuse it again. So that's one way, but that's not reusing it in a new space. It worked. That works too though. Does that work too? Yeah. With um, textile, there's an amazing organization called fab scrap. They will come and collect your fabrics. They take them, they sort them. This was one woman who started this and now I don't know how many people they're up to. They sort them and then they, figure out different homes for them. They upcycle them. They have a shop. They can send some back to a mill if the content is what the mill is can recycle or you know upcycle. It's called fab scrap. So that's another thing. And we have, as you can imagine, in our studio, a lot of leftover samples at the end when we're putting a collection to bed. Fab scrap comes probably once every few weeks to pick up from us big bags. And we feel so good about it because we know they're not just going in a dump. So that's something else. And then um, the last part is the most interesting to me. And I always think I'd love to collaborate with someone at MIT. So maybe you can introduce me is the idea of some beautiful wall covering that can be moved, that can be re the bet closest I've come is I have a actually bestseller product called magnetism. It's a very simple linen wall covering, but it's very beautiful linen goes on the wall and it's completely magnetic receptive. So the closest I come there is you can change what you have on it just by whatever you put on it. So the always sense that's not helpful if someone is moving, but it's helpful if after five years you want something different on your wall, instead of doing a new wall covering, you keep always the linen, but then you put up something else with the magnets. Oh, love that. There's other ideas. And you know what? Yeah invention ever was slip covers you could change without you know and then change again and change back so i feel like i have all these ideas but i need a i need like a industrial designer or a scientist to collaborate with on it and i'll make yeah. it pretty but yeah. i need them to come up with how it can change one last thing and i maybe i'm going on too long i've often thought because i do a lot with healthcare that and, and my book talks about this, that different colors are really important depending on what your issue is, what your challenge is. Heart patients need different colors than cancer patients, et cetera, et cetera. Couldn't there be a way when you check into your hospital room that you can change the color in there based on what your illness is? And the only thing I could come up with was light, but light isn't do it. Light is weird. Mm-hmm. So I feel like yeah. if, there's, if you know someone wants to work with me on this, let me know. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that's what we need to be doing. Thinking about things that 
aren't doable right now that we that are that we need yeah. to figure out and that's how we break some dishes and i love where you're going with all of this and i love your thinking yeah i agree i agree some of those what did we used to call them verda when we were talking to um oliver from dell what did he call it like your moonshot yeah, yeah. everybody needs yeah. to have a moonshot project oh, moonshot. a oh, moonshot yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that would be mine, but I can, I would be a part of it, but it has to be, I need to collaborators on it because I don't have the tools in me to figure it all out. Yeah. I love the idea of being able to change the color in a, in a hospital right. room. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. We'll have to think about sending possible collaborators your yeah. way. <laughs> and I love that. I love that you want to bring some scientists into the mix. I think that's what we all need to be doing. Yeah. Right. So maybe, maybe Greg's your guy. Did you ever connect with uh, Molly from Mango Materials? Yes. And then what happened? Wait a minute. Right after I spoke to you. And now I can't remember if we said we get, I have to, I have to look back at the link of emails because right after you, I followed up with her and then I can't remember what happened. Uh, Oh, well, we'll get that one going. COVID dropped the ball syndrome. (laughs) Let's blame COVID. I think that's what we should do. (laughs) We can only blame COVID much but i'm going to follow up on that but i've been watching my friend told me about this um series on netflix it's called abstract it's a series called abstract and each episode is different and cool and it talks about designing different ways and one episode is this one episode mary the the she's the head of the material lab at mit she's from israel so cool i watched that and i just you you guys should both watch it Oh, we will. I'll put that on my list. And oh, nice. Robert, I yeah. we'll let you go because I know we're coming to the top of our, our time here. But did either of you see Seaspiracy yet? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. It's on Netflix. You both have to watch it. I hate nice. to tell you this, but you'll probably never eat fish again. Oh, yeah. gosh. <laughs> it's, it's horrible, but you got to see it. You have to know it. You have to know it. Oh, yeah. Seaspiracy. Yeah. All right. I've got two horrible. good... Two good recommendations. That's yeah. always a good thing to get. We need to maybe add this to our episodes. I know. Good. We should. It should be a part of our episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> what can we eat now? Soon we're not going to be able to eat anything. Yeah. See that? I'm looking at the grass in my backyard. That's probably about it. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, thanks for jumping on with us for a while, Lori. It was really fun. It was great. Yeah. To have you. Thank you. It was wonderful and an honor to be with you guys. So yeah. thank you for including Yeah, I'm excited to hear what you do next with um, some of these programs. And I'm hoping maybe you celebrate this a little bit more on your website. We tried to find a little bit more information on some of your, the communities that you've worked with. And yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to read more. Read more about it. Yeah, I should probably make it more front and center, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of people struggle with that because they don't want to make it seem like they're doing it just so they can market it. Right. But it, it's still a beautiful yeah, story. And I, doing that. I just love the idea of cultural sustainability. And I think it's something that needs attention. So kudos to you. And best of luck with all of these projects you're working on. You definitely have a lot of passion. We see it in your smile, but <laughs> hopefully people can hear it in your voice when they listen. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Laurie. You. Okay. Take care. All right, Bye. Bye.